I think it's great having you and Ramona back. And please allow me to add my warm welcome to you, whether you've gathered here in person or you're worshiping with us at home. It is always so good to gather here with God's people at Chantilly Bible Church and uh, to dig into God's Word together. This morning, as we return to the Gospel of Matthew, specifically that large block of uh, teaching we know as the Sermon on the Mount, I think it would be very helpful to kind of help me uh, help to summarize what we've seen so far. And to do that, I'd like to inquire of you, uh, if, if someone were to ask you, this is something I wrestled with this week, to sum up what Jesus has taught us here in the Sermon on the Mount, how would you do that briefly in just one, maybe two sentences? It's not a simple task, I think. Personally, I believe with all my heart that uh, any proposed summary of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, to be accurate anyway, must be tied to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, where in that verse he commands us, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That, my friends, I believe is the challenge or the charge that Jesus is calling us to see and, and to understand and to personally experience in this mountain sermon that he preached. Now, I want to make clear here that Christ's mountain sermon is not a presentation of the gospel, nor does it explain the plan of salvation to non-believers. The Sermon on the Mount is rather an explanation of what it looks like to live for us as followers of Jesus Christ and to serve as loyal subjects of God's kingdom. And pure and simple, Jesus is describing in the sermon the basic life and characteristics of kingdom citizens, of Christ followers who are living under God's gracious reign and under his fatherly care. For example, I started thinking back to some of the things we've looked at. Jesus begins with the Beatitudes, and he shows us things like to be truly blessed, to be truly used to the Lord. It will require that we're poor in spirit, mourning over sin, meek and pure in heart. Jesus also commands his kingdom citizens to be cultural influences, namely salt and light in our lost world. In his mountain sermon, Jesus likewise warns that sin will often begin in our minds and in our hearts and even our emotions. Sins like lust and anger and adultery and will often result in sinful acts if they're not dealt with properly. Jesus taught us that mercy rather than wrath, even but especially with dealing with enemies, our concern is absolutely necessary. And Jesus taught us how to pray and to fast and to give properly, not like the hypocrites who are seeking their own glory rather than the glory of God. And he explained what true treasure is, didn't he? What treasure is in heaven to be laid up rather than all the treasures that we're seeking here on this earth. And, and, and that list covers a whole lot of thoughts about and practicality in our lives. And today, together, as we look at Matthew 7, 7 through 11, I'd like you to keep all those big themes in your minds. Turn with me, if you haven't already done so, to Matthew chapter 7. And as you're doing that, please note that we are picking up right where Pastor Mike left off last week. 
in his message. Contextually, you may recall Jesus has just spoken to his disciples about being proud and hypocritically judgmental. And just prior to that, he, we heard how Jesus tell, tells us how to deal with that anxiousness in light of the material needs of this life and to recognize God as a faithful provider. But today, as I hope you'll see in just a minute, I think Jesus is beginning here in verse 7 and through the remainder of this uh, study of uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he seems to be winding down our moving towards a conclusion. And we can see that in our text today, verses 7 through 11. Would you follow along with me in your Bibles as I read out loud here verses 7 through 11? Very familiar passage. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asked him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? That is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to our hearts. Let's go ahead and walk verse by verse through this text. And, and, and try to make application as to what Jesus is telling us here and how it fits into the broader, broader context of Jesus' message here. The first thing I'd like you to observe here in verse 7 is that Jesus gives his disciples and all of his listeners three specific commands of action. Did you hear them? Jesus commands us to ask, to seek, and to knock. And although not captured here in most of our modern English language translations, in the original text, this, uh, these commands, they all appear in the present tense, emphasizing a continual or a persistent action. And so our text could literally read, keep on asking, uh, keep on seeking, or keep on knocking. I have more to say about that later in, the, in our sermon. For now, I want you to note that in addition to these commands, Jesus makes a promise. Did you see that in verse 7? Hear it. Verse 7. Ask, Jesus instructs, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. <laughs> that sounds pretty assuring, doesn't it? But wait, what, what exactly does Jesus mean here when he commands us to ask or to seek or to knock? I think one passage to help me understand how to answer that question is a companion passage in Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 10. And here we find Jesus teaching his disciples, and this is what he says. I'll put it up on the screen so you can follow. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, don't bother me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, says Jesus, verse 8, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, sound familiar here, verse 9, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone, verse 10 says, who asks receives, and the one who seeks knocks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened 
up. Do you see what Jesus is doing there? Not only do we find yet another instance in the scriptures of ask, seek, and not commands here, but this time it is introduced by this simple parable traditionally known as the friend at midnight. Why is this parable so important? This parable is so important, I believe, because even though the words ask, seek, and knock are not used in the parable itself, it is clear to me that they are implied. Think about it. This friend is seeking provision for his unexpected guest. And as a result, we find him persistently knocking on a door of a friend in order to secure those provisions. And once he wakes up his friends, he goes on to ask him for that needed provision. Now, what does that mean in terms of understanding and properly applying ask, seek, and knock? My friends, I believe it means that these three commands are simply three ways of talking about prayer, about our communication with God. Now, please note, Jesus is not saying here that our Heavenly Father is that like that reluctant friend who needs to be persuaded many times before he gives us help. Rather, I think he is saying that even if, if a reluctant friend will give out of a person's persistence, how much more will our Heavenly Father do so? Jesus, I believe, is instructing his disciples to be persistent in prayer all along, being confident that our Heavenly Father will provide whatever is best for them according to his sovereign and perfect will. In fact, does anyone know what Jesus has just been talking about before he shares this parable in Luke 11. The Lord is teaching there his disciples that model prayer, right? The very same prayer that Jesus has taught them back in Matthew in the previous chapter, chapter 6. Now, how can Jesus speak with such certainty about prayer and the divine promise of God's provision? Well, I believe that's exactly what Jesus goes on to explain to us here through an illustration in verses 9 and 10. Look at what he says. Which of you, Jesus asked, if his son asked him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, will give him a serpent? The basis of Jesus' logic or argument here is that parents will take care of their children by giving them what they know they need. Now, sadly, we know in this world that's not always true, but it is universally true to the extent that we know a neglect of our abuse of these, uh, you know, these needs uh, is, is an unacceptable standard. And so the majority of parents do not need to be forced or policed when it comes to feeding or caring for their children. They generally want to protect and provide for their children. If we can agree on that foundational point, then we can understand what Jesus is saying here in verse 11. Look at verse 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? If even sinful, broken parents, claims Jesus, can take care of their children by giving them what they need, how much better, Jesus is asking, is the care of a perfectly pure, loving Heavenly Father for His children? And so the bottom line then is we can depend on God to answer our prayers and fulfill His promises to provide whatever is best for us according to God's sovereign, perfect, 
gracious will because, dear friends, we serve a gracious Heavenly Father. We serve a loving Heavenly Father. Now, interestingly, throughout this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has continually reminded us, admonished us to examine our hearts, hasn't he? But here in this portion of Jesus' sermon, Jesus is now challenging us to look at the heart of our Heavenly Father and to see how much he cares for us. And to remember the perfect, pure, provision-creating love that the God the Father has promised to all of his children. And so the main point or thought here thus far is Christ followers should be persistent in our prayer, being confident that God will hear and provide what is best for us, hear me, in light of the fact that he is a glorious, gracious, loving, heavenly father. Now, with that conclusion in mind, two questions, critical questions came to my heart, and I want to share each of those and address them with you. Question number one, is Jesus here giving us a blank check to get whatever we want, whenever we want it, as long as we ask and seek and knock? Absolutely not. God is not a genie in the sky, a cosmic bending machine. He is God. And that, because of that truth, he is the one who gets to determine or define what is good for us, not us. I love what Charles Spurgeon says. He puts it perfectly when he writes, it would be a terrible thing if God always gave all that we asked. Amen? I, I can say amen to that. Our Heavenly Father, I love what he says here, knows how to give far better than we know how to ask. Now that being noted, I believe Jesus is reminding us here, acknowledging that good parents don't simply give their child whatever he or she wants whenever they want it. They understand that a large part of their responsibility or role as a parent is to help their children to be discerning and understand the difference between needs and greeds and needs and wants. Likewise, God never promises us that we are going to be wealthy, healthy, and free from problems. And so if we pray for those things, despite what many modern teachers are teaching us today and might claim, we have no scriptural assurances that God will answer those requests. However, what I do see in this text that Jesus is promising us that if we will persistently and unselfishly in faith and according to God's will pray, which includes, as I see a major emphasis in this text, developing that righteous kingdom character that God is calling us to in this text, according to Jesus, we will receive from God what we need for success or victory. And I want to make that a special note here because in the, we're going to be out of the study now for the next couple of weeks of the Sermon on the Mount to address the Missions Emphasis Week. But when we come back to that in three weeks, we're going to discover as we move into chapter 7, verse 12, and the rest of chapter 7, it really is a conclusion to this whole message. Now, what does that matter? What difference does that make? It matters because the lay of the land or the context that we find Jesus giving us or confirming us with these words about prayer, I believe are strategically placed. You see, I believe that Jesus at this point understands that after hearing 
these, these teachings of Jesus. This is radical. This is revolutionary. This is counterintuitive teaching that any uh, self-aware, honest person is going to say, Lord, how do people like me who crave the crown and, and regularly fight for the throne and are constantly straying from your, from your perfect plan. How do we truly, Lord, and consistently seek first your kingdom and your righteousness? And here in today's passage, I believe Jesus is assuring us, reassuring us that it is possible if we pray persistently and unselfish in faith according to God's will, which again, I believe includes developing that righteous Christ-like character, we will receive from God what we need to be successful or victorious. In fact, one of the men who's listening to this text or this sermon for, for the very first time as everyone else is the Apostle Peter. And many years later, he would express in his second epistle, chapter one, verses three and four, these words. Listen carefully. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Look at verse 4. By which he has granted to us his precious and great promises that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of your sinful desire. Observe carefully here how Peter begins his body of the letter, his second epistle, by uh, acknowledging the great mercy that we have in Christ and that he has given believers a new life and a guaranteed future, a, a glory in Christ. How is this redeeming and renewer, ruining power uh, given to us? Well, if we go back to Luke chapter 11, this companion passage we discover some critical additional differences or information from what Jesus has said here in Matthew 7 to help us understand. Let me put those words up again and follow along verses 9 through 13. Notice what Jesus says. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, using a little bit of a different illustration here, if his son asks for a fish, instead will give him a serpent, or verse 12, he asks for an egg, he will give him a scorpion. Look at verse 13. If you then who are evil how, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father, look at this, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Notice here that this redeeming and renewing power is given to believing sinners when they put their trust in Christ. This gift is the indwelling Holy Spirit. You know, you're probably familiar. I remember reading this to my children, and now I'm reading it to my grandchildren, the story, The Little Engine That Could. Everybody familiar with that? It's a, a story about a small engine who keeps repeating the words, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And then using her sheer willpower, pulls an entire train over a mountainside. That's a nice children's story. But the truth of the Christian life is very, very different. In the real world, our efforts and our self-determination will often fall short. Only by walking in the power 
of the Holy Spirit can we truly and consistently live out this new life in Jesus to the glory of God consistently. And so one of the big takeaways I see in our biblical text today is that a disciple's response to our Savior's call here in this text, which I believe to be one of the major thrusts, the major themes of the Sermon on the Mount, is a call to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness can be an assured response if, if we are praying consistently in accordance to his will, walking with him. And so I believe Jesus is addressing some of our fears and doubts, probably some of the same ones that the people hearing this sermon for the first time. What if I ask and I'm turned down? What if I seek, um, just seem to be going in circles? What if I knock and no one seems to answer? Acknowledging those common fears, look with me again, please, at verses 7 and 8 here in Matthew 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks it will be opened. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says about these verses when he writes, prayer is the great blessing that puts the impotence, our impotence in touch with God's omnipotence. Our lack of, of, of touch with his supply, our needs in touch with his riches. And so rather than the, the walk away that I take from this, the major application I personally take from this text is I have to admit to you the primary focus and persistence of my prayers, just being honest, is often acquiring or achieving for myself things. And I think the Lord is reminding us here in this text that our focus and our persistence in our prayers ought to be in accordance with what he prays in Matthew 6, 19, 9 through 13, and here in, in 7, a focus and a persistence on, on knowing and doing God's will, on living out our lives for his kingdom and his glory, on overcoming sin and forgiveness, uh, through forgiveness and repentance. And I believe with all my heart, one of the major emphasis is asking God to help us to be more and more like Jesus. There were two critical questions. First, did he give us a blank check? Absolutely not. I think the second one is as important, if not more important. How can we know God as our Father? How can we know God as our Father? You see, it is not simply God's character that, that is meant to reassure us here. It's a relationship to or with God that makes the difference. The reality is that everything in this passage rests on the certainty that this divine promise of access to God is given to the sons and daughters of God. Now, some of you might say, well, wait a minute, Pastor. Look at verse 8. Everyone who asks, seeks, and knocks, right? It most definitely does say that. Jesus, you see, is assuring us that everyone who asks, seeks, and knocks in faith in light of the good news of the gospel will find and gain access to that life-changing grace of God. Now, I stopped here at this point. I thought, you know, I, I wonder what they're thinking as they're hearing this text. And there's no doubt in my mind that the disciples understood that God wanted them to see, or that Jesus wanted them to see God as a father to them. What I don't think they quite grasped yet, and I can understand why, they couldn't fully understand at this point how it would actually come, how they would actually come to know God as their father. 
They did not know, for example, that Jesus, the perfect son of God, was about to suffer on a cross and die in their place and for their sins. They did not know that he would rise three days later, securing these kingdom promises for everyone who would believe, including, I would add, the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit that makes it possible to be cleansed and make us more like Jesus. Amazingly, and I can never get too tired of sharing this, amazingly, in his vast love for us, rather than reducing his righteousness to line up with ours, listen, my friends, to what God did for us according to 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here's what we're told. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here, here is the very heart of the gospel. The sinless Savior has taken upon himself our sin, took it to the cross so that we might have God's righteousness. And thus, when sinful people like you and me put our trust in Jesus as our deliverer and our savior, God makes this amazing exchange, our sin for Christ's righteousness. And because of this exchange, from that moment on that we put our trust in, in Christ, in God's eyes, it's as if we are without sin. It's not that we won't sin. I can attest to that. But when he looks at us, he sees us forgiven in Jesus Christ. We're not just accepted or put up with. We are welcomed into God's family with delight. When God looks at us, he does not see us in light of who we once were. He sees us redeemed, new creations made whole. And I firmly believe that when you and I comprehend this new identity that we possess in Jesus Christ, it will radically change our hearts and our lives. I think we have a lot of here, but has it really moved to here? And that's why looking back at verse 11, I can confidently say here that among all the good things that God in his unbounded generosity has given us, Jesus is by far the best and the most priceless and valuable gift that he could give us. And so I beg you, if you haven't put your trust in Jesus, it, like any other gift, you've got you've to receive it or accept it, that you'll put your trust in Jesus. Today. For Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, everyone, again, who believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What an amazing, amazing promise. I hope everyone has put their trust in Jesus. What about those who have already trusted in Christ? Well, one of the things I see throughout this text is this illustration of children and father. And the verse that popped into my mind was 1 John 3, 1. I love this verse. And I want us to remember this as we walk out of here today. 1 John 3, 1 says this, See, Behold, pay careful attention, brother, our sister in Christ, of the kind of the love the Father has given us that we, listen, should be called children of God, and so we are. The phrase children of God today is so loosely used that it's lost a lot of its meaning and significance. But would you please just reflect on this verse? 
God has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. All in Christ have been declared by God to be his beloved children. Not just somewhere down the future here, but right now, if you have trusted in Jesus, you are a child of God. I started thinking, you know, in this room, not likely many of us will be considered in history to be all that significant or great. Neither will we receive any accolades or special recognition in our city or town that we live. But God the Father is pleased to take us into his very own family. He has bestowed upon us the greatest honor possible. We are a child of God. Amen? Praise him. Praise him. And because we are a beloved member of God's family, the thing that I see being emphasized in this text, when we humbly and persistently ask, seek, and knock, we can be sure that Jesus, from Jesus here, that our prayers will be heard. And most specifically, I think, in this text, as already noted here, I believe that Jesus is emphasizing that we can and we will grow in righteous kingdom character if we allow God to work and pray. You know, the truth be told, many of us know the type of persistent prayer that's being spoken of here when somebody that we love is deathly ill or when we're in desperate financial situations. But very few of us, me included, I believe are persistent in prayer for righteousness to become more and more like Jesus. Why does that matter so much? Well, let me remind you of what Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, earlier Jesus said. Look at this. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do we believe that? Blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And so my challenge to all of us today let us press confidently forward together in a desire to know Jesus better and to become more and more like him. Let us prayerfully seek to grow in these kingdom characteristics that Jesus brings to bear here in this text in light of the power, in light of the promise and the provisions of the one who is both our king and our father. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the amazing, awesome gift that he is and for the eternal life he brings for all those who put their trust in him. He is indeed an inexpressible gift, Lord, an amazing gift. And I pray for anyone here who doesn't know him as Savior that they might put their trust in him. Lord, thank you that you love us, that, Father, your love will never change. There's nothing we can do or not do that will make us be loved by you any more or any less. I do pray, Lord, that we will understand your desire for us to seek first your kingdom and, and, and to live out these righteous characteristics as we ask and we seek and knock. In light, Lord, in light of the power and the promise and the provisions of you who are both our king and our great father. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.